May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. How often do you find yourself killing time? That's what we do, don't we? We kill time. Sometimes we slay it, um, but we kill it. You have a party to go to. The party starts at 7. Half past 5, you decide to get ready. Let's suppose you're a low-maintenance uh, preparer. You start at 5.30, and by 5.35, you're ready to go, you know? Maybe 5.45, you know, you're going to a nice party, you want to get dressed up. But you're espoused to someone who has a different schedule of getting ready. I don't, you know, some of you have that, huh? Um, they also start at 5.30, but perhaps won't be ready till 7.30, you know, 30 minutes after the party begins. What do you do in the meantime? You kill time. That's what you do, and you know how to do it, don't you? For some of us, it means turning on Sports Center, you know, catching up on scores and highlights from around the country. Um, maybe uh, you turn on your favorite 24-hour news channel and find out what sort of mischief the president's been up to or what great accomplishment he has made, depending on which uh, you know political persuasion you happen to be watching in the news channel. Um, some people kill time with video games, or um, maybe they read novels, do crossword puzzles, lots of ways. Maybe you're the sort of person who works on things, you know. You've got this clock on your bench out in the garage and you just want to go get at it. But you know you've got nice clothes on and you're going to get your hands all dirty and your sleeves. and So you can't do that. You don't like reading novels and you don't watch television. You don't do crossword puzzles. So you know what you do? You sit on the couch and you stew for 90 minutes. And then you're the life of the party, aren't you, when you finally get there. So we kill time. That's what we do. I got a dentist appointment to go to. It's an hour away. I got to kill some time. My mother's coming. She's not going to be here for a little while. I gotta kill some time until she gets here. Supposed to be at some friends at seven. Got some time to kill. Killing time is doing something of no real value, <laughs> but is nevertheless entertaining. You know, it's usually something to kind of pass the time to to keep you occupied whilst you're waiting on this other thing to do. Usually it's at least mildly interesting. It, um, it, it, it holds off boredom. Killing time is a lot different, though, than wasting time. Wasting time is a completely different sort of thing. Killing time is to make the time, you know, go along quick, you know, to, to make it more interesting or whatever. But it's rarely productive. Wasting time, though, is, is completely destroying time. It's, 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 a, it, it's a total useless amount of time. Um, rare is the person who kills time by saying, you know, um, I better check the light bulbs around the house and change the furnace filters and that sort of thing. I mean, that's not the way you kill time, right? That, that's a good use of time. Wasting time is what you do when you should be doing something else. Like playing video games when you should be doing homework. You know, that's wasting time. Or, or watching TV when you should be uh, putting brakes on the car or, or doing a crossword puzzle when you should be getting ready for work. That's wasting time. I, I saw this website this week of the, the top ten um, time wasters in the workplace. Texting friends. Workplace gossip. Facebook and other social media. Uh, surfing the Internet. Snacks and smoking breaks. Noisy co-workers. Meetings. Oh, my word. Uh, and, and it goes on, you know. And I, I thought that it's easy to determine that somebody's wasting time when you're paying them. 
That's how you really know when they're wasting time. When you're paying them to do something else other than what they're doing, uh, you know they're then wasting time. Time is a finite resource. It's a limited supply. And every one of us right here this morning has a finite amount of time in front of us. And we don't know how much, it, how much we have. It could be decades. It could be a lot less. But we have a finite resource, a finite amount of time. And the question, is this a good use of my time, is a really good question to ask. The 122nd Psalm is a psalm uh, that is called a song of ascent. It's, um, it's part of 15 psalms that go from 120 to 134. There are these little psalms. They're, they're actually songs. They're, they're songs meant to be sung. Um, some of them to sort of bluesy riffs, uh, others to sort of a country music sound. Um, occasionally pipe organs might be necessary. But they're songs that were meant to be sung. And they were songs that pilgrims would sing as they would travel. As they would come to Jerusalem on a, um, a thrice annual visit to the holy city, they would come from all over Israel, north, south, east, and west, and they would all go up to Jerusalem. Because no matter which direction you were coming, north, south, east, or west, you always had to climb the mountain, Mount Zion, had to go up the hill to Jerusalem. And so as, as people were coming, they would climb this hill. And the first one, the 120th Psalm, is, is a real kind of discordant, bluesy song. Um, and it's a song of, of repentance, recognizing that the psalmist says, I've lived among people with lying lips. And I, just, I, I bought into the lies of the world around me. And I'm going back to Jerusalem to reorient myself towards truth. And then the psalm sort of progressed in, in a, a, a semi-functional uh, way, at least in a, a, a linear way. And the third psalm that we get to is the psalm that we have today, the 122nd. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is a psalm of worship, isn't it? I was glad when they... So they've already made their way up to the city. They're up in the city. And now someone says, let's go to worship. Now's the time to go to worship. And the psalmist says, I was glad. This is a delight. It's a joy to go to worship. Genuine worship always comes from the heart. It's always a desire, a longing to be in God's presence. Real worship is never coerced and never forced. They used to have this um, term in the church, days of obligation, holy days of obligation. Perhaps some of you remember that from uh, your schooling when you were children. You will be here on this day, you know. Um, yeah, okay, but do you really get worship from that? My children say that they grew up with a drug problem, that every time we went to church they got drug along with us, you know. Okay, sometimes that happens. You know, sometimes it's a child that's forced to go, a spouse that feels obligated to go. But that's not genuine worship. Genuine worship comes from the heart. And I think it's okay to sort of evaluate worship, to think about worship that can be corrupted or at least compromised. And if you look around the landscape of the church, it's, it's, 
for some of us, it's, it's pretty easy to spot. You know, worship that is, a, a, you know, therapy or rock concerts or whatever else it could be, is, or even classical music concerts, that's not, that's not worship. Worship is drawing into the presence of God. It's, it, worship is an intentional focus on the presence of God. A lot of churches sort of um, advertise, you know, what, what's, what's great about this church? Oh, this is a family church or, you know, we have a great children's ministry or whatever. I always want to say, this is a place where you can meet God. This is, this is what it is. This is a place where you can come into the presence of the Holy One. And if that's not enough, you, you know, then nothing else really works. Whenever um, our family goes on vacation, we always look for a church to go to. Well, let me, Abby and I look for a church to go to, you know, um, and, uh, and we never make kids go. You know, we always offer it. We're going to church in the morning. Would you like to go? Hmm, I'll think about that. Um, and then uh, we get up, and, and if anybody wants to go, and sometimes they do, but we'll get up and go because we want to go with delight, you know. I mean, there's time for instruction, and there's time for worship. And, and vacation for us is a time for just worship, to go as worshipers to a church. But we always look for a church that has word and sacrament. So that we can draw close to God. That's what worship is. It's an attempt and a, a, a movement towards the presence of God. And it always begins with focus on God. But it always comes with something else, a benefit. Not something that we do in order to get this benefit. But it always comes with a benefit that there's always this, this, this uh, gift that comes back to the worshiper. Here's what the psalmist says. Jerusalem is built as a city that is at unity with itself. The old uh, King James Version used to say, it's compact together. Jerusalem is compact together, which makes almost no sense unless you think of it this way. That the psalmist saw Jerusalem, the city, as a metaphor for worship. That it fits together. Jerusalem Fits together, And we use this language all the time in the way that we talk about ourselves and our sense of well-being, don't we? We say things like, I don't know if you say this, I feel discombobulated. I feel out of sorts. Wait a minute, I need to get my head together. You hear this language? It's, 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 it's a part. And when everything's right, we've tied up all the loose ends. This is the language we use when we talk about the way that things are supposed to be. When they're fit together, when they're made the way they ought to be, when they're, they're put back into rights, that we, we bring things together. Jerusalem has a d- definite shape, the psalmist says. Because Jerusalem is a city of worship. And when I come to worship, all of a sudden life starts to make sense. It starts to fit back together. It starts to make sense about the ways that things are going. It has definite shape. And you know, I think our world, we're in a lot of disorientation around us. And in large part, because people have forgotten how to worship. They've forgotten to come and seek God and to make God their greatest good. But worship never really satisfies. This is the irony of the paradox of worship is that when you worship properly, it never really satisfies. It always just whets your appetite for more. I want more of this. Here's what the psalmist says. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls and quietness within your towers. For my brethren and companions' sake, 
I pray for your prosperity. This is not a Zionist call in in a political sort of sense. It's rather the longing of the heart of one who loves worship and knows its value in a community. I pray for my brethren and companions' sake that there would be peace and quietness, which is security. And he sort of has a play on words here between shalom, which is peace, and shalvah, which is security or quietness. So there's this peace and security would be within you. And peace is, is exactly what, what he says about Jerusalem. Peace is shalom, a really difficult word. Um, Eugene Peterson says it's as difficult to define shalom as it is to define a human by their social security number. You know, you can't really say that this is what makes up the whole of a person. But in, in ancient Hebrew thinking, shalom is everything is put together to rights. There's a sense of wholeness and meaning and, and completeness. And security is not just a strong military or a really good insurance policy. It's more than that. It's a sense of, of, of leisurely attitude. You know, a child who doesn't worry about things. You know what? They don't worry about the electric bill. You know, they don't worry about, you know, where the house is going. You know, they, they don't worry about those sort of things. Why? Because their parents take care of that. The psalmist says proper worship is a sense in which we trust that God is going to take care of all these things. Today's a, a new year. Happy New Year. There weren't many parties last night, and if you had one and didn't invite me, I want to know why. Um, there, there weren't many parties, and, um, and nobody really broke out a new calendar this morning, but today is the beginning of a new year. It's Advent, the first Sunday, the first day of Advent. We've told the story of, of, of God's great salvation in Jesus Christ for a whole year, and now we're getting ready to tell it again. A little preview, a little spoiler alert. Next year we're going to tell it again, all right? The story of the whole Bible comes to us in, beginning in, the, in Advent and throughout the church year, and we are, of course, getting ready for Christmas But this little poem, this little song in the middle of the Bible, this tells us something else that's really important, and it's about the fact that the the beginning of the year is the beginning of worship. And that we put it back in its right priority in our lives. Seeking God. Seeking God for God's self alone. And expecting that He's going to change our lives because of it. That it's really the very best use of our time. Um... You, of course, know the name Alfred Nobel, who was uh, famed for his um, awards, uh, the Nobel Awards in, in medicine, in, uh, in literature, in peace, in economics, that come with this worldwide re- uh, renown and, and also a tidy sum of like a million dollars. There's a really great award to get if you ever get one. It would be fantastic, and I'll say that I knew you. Uh, but maybe you don't know that Alfred Nobel was the inventor of dynamite. He invented lots of things. Um, He was a a great inventor, but he invented dynamite. And as the case went, um, uh, Alfred Nobel had a brother. I can't remember his brother's name, but his brother passed away. And the local newspaper thought that Alfred had passed away. And so they wrote this long, elaborate obituary and put it on the front page of the paper, which he himself got to read the next morning. Um, It's a rare feat that someone gets to read their own obituary, actually, in the newspaper, but this is what happened. 
The newspaper obituary, in all of what it said, said this about Nobel. It said that he um, had invented a way of killing more people more quickly than anyone else in human history. He had invented a way of killing more people more quickly than anyone else in human history. And he read that line, and it hit him very hard. And he realized straight away that two things was going to happen. One is that he was going to be remembered. And second, he did not want to be remembered this way. And so he took his fortune and he started these awards, these Nobel Prizes for uh, medicine and, and peace and so on. He was distressed and disturbed by what his obituary said about him. Our lives matter. What we do matters. How we spend our time matters. And so as we begin this new year, hear these words of the psalmist. They should hit us like a ton of bricks. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Because that will change everything. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.